Well, folks, tonight we jump back into Genesis where we left off. Genesis 29. Genesis 29. Uh, you know, uh, don't, now don't be offended what I'm about to say, okay? Because it comes right out of the biblical text. But I thought of a title for tonight and I thought better of it. I was going to call it uh, Superstitious Sex Potions and Strange Women. And I think that'll come to light later on. But uh, a strange woman, of course, is anybody, any woman who's not your wife is a strange woman. And so, anyway, I decided to call it along with Dr. Kent Hughes, Birth Wars or Baby Wars. So let's pick up reading in verse uh, 31 of chapter 29. Says when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated. He has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. 
In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of, some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also, Rachel said? Uh, Rachel said, Then may Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I've given my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I've borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. As I mentioned, Dr. Kent Hughes refers to this section in his commentary on the book of Genesis by the title, Birth Wars. And I think that's probably a very good title to give this section of Genesis. Now folks, here again we are going to see a very common theme in the book of Genesis. And that theme is namely this. That God has a way of using very imperfect people to accomplish His purposes. Something we've got to keep in mind is that since Genesis chapter 3, things have drastically changed in the world. What happened in Genesis 3? The fall of man. Sin came into the world. Now folks, when that happened, it changed everything. Individuals were changed, families were changed, communities were changed, even the nation would be changed because of that. Now, we know what, what it is that addresses this matter of sin, right? What is it? It's redemption, right? Redemption is what addresses this issue of sin, In redemption, what does God do? God changes hearts from the inside out, which in turn changes individuals, which in turn changes families, hopefully, sometimes slowly though, and it can even have a way of changing communities. Well, at the same time, who's waging war against us? Satan is. 
And Satan is sowing his ugly seeds of division and destruction. And sometimes it might seem like he's winning. But in the end, he certainly does not win. God will make all things new and the full results of redemption will take place. And you and I must not lose sight of that. There is a new day coming one day when God makes all things new. And so as you read your Bible, keep that in mind. The Bible, in the meantime, is very honest about the effects of sin. We see sin at work even in godly people who end up being heroes of the faith. Now, sometimes unbelievers come to the Bible and they use stories like we're going to read tonight, like we're going to study rather. They use stories like this to promote an anti-God or an anti-Christian agenda. But actually, these stories show just the opposite. These stories show the ugliness of sin and the Bible talks about what God is doing to address it. And so if you encounter unbelievers who try to use stories like this for their purposes, try to get them to keep reading the Bible. In fact, try to get them to keep reading the Bible until the very end. Now personally, I think this is one of the saddest stories in the Bible when you consider all of the dynamics that are at work. But if you're taking notes, the first thing I want you to write down tonight is marriage gone wrong. Marriage gone wrong. This whole situation is a sad commentary on disobedience when it comes to marriage. Folks, God has a plan for marriage. I want you to turn back to Genesis 2 for a moment. Genesis 2, and I want you to pick up reading with me in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said... This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What's some of the principles of marriage that you see in that text? One to one, okay? A man and a woman. What else? I'm sorry, I didn't hear. They become one, okay? What else? Lots of principles in there. 
Come on, class, speak up tonight. You what? The woman's a helper. The man needs companionship and he needs somebody corresponding to him to be his helper. So the two complete one another. Okay, what else? Leaving and cleaving. Uh, leaving his father and mother, being, being joined to his wife. The Hebrew there is, literally has the idea of being glued to his wife. Being glued to his wife. And what's the image, what's the image that that promotes? Permanence. Being glued together. Permanence. So Genesis 2 tells us what marriage is supposed to be. And remember in the Gospels when Jesus was asked about marriage, what did he do? He brought the group back to this very passage. Now, it is true that not until the law was polygamy like we see here forbidden. But that's not, that's not all I'm going to say about that. Uh, Leviticus in the law, Leviticus 18, 18, specifically addresses not taking a sister of your wife as an intimate partner. At least not while your wife is living. And the law also speaks against polygamy in general. And so someone could argue that the Genesis passages came before the law and so therefore they did not know any better. But I think you have to admit that from Genesis 2 we see very plainly there that from the beginning God's plan for marriage was to be monogamy. Even though it's not in the law yet, that is the very clear implication anybody would see from this text here. So what we see in Genesis also is that any time monogamy is ignored, there is suffering. What would be some cases in point over that? From, from Genesis, what would be, yeah, Solomon later on, but from Genesis, what would be some cases in point that we've already covered? Abraham and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah when he took Hagar, and then the birth of Ishmael and all the division that that caused. Even before that, what do we find? How about Lamech and his wives Ada and Zillah? Lamech was a brutal and a vengeful man. Then you have Esau marrying the Hittite women and causing grief to his parents. And then after marrying Hittite women, what did he then go and do? He took a wife from among the Ishmaelites. What I'm trying to say is that cases of polygamy in the Old Testament generally record sordid events and sad endings along with the polygamy. Pain and division is generally 
the outcome. Now, it ought to be easy to see why suffering results because marriage is to be a one flesh relationship between a husband and a wife. And so when you have multiple marriage partners, you no longer have the one flesh bond. And so at the very heart of a polygamous marriage, the one flesh principle is violated. Folks, it also shows us that sin has consequences. People think that they can go out and just live life any way that they want to, any way that they feel like living life. But in the end, what's going to happen if we do that? There's a high price to pay. What Galatians 6, 7 tell us? Be not deceived. God is not mocked. And also I want you to understand that God's commands are for our good. God knows how he has made us. God's commands are not simply to restrict us, but to help us have a more enjoyable life. I always think of the illustration I've given you before of the young man who broke down on the side of the road and it was apparent from the looks of him that he had some degree of skill when it came to working on cars. Well, just then a nicely dressed man in a suit and a tie pulls alongside of him and says, Young man, can I help you? The young man looks up, sees the professionalism of the man, sees him in his suit and tie, and sort of laughs and says, Well, I seriously doubt that you can help me. And the man said, Well, I think that maybe I can offer you some guidance on your particular problem because, you see, my name is Henry Ford, and I designed that particular automobile. God knows how he's made us. And he knows how life is supposed to work. He's our designer. He's our creator. If only these characters in Genesis could have seen that. But you know what? Oftentimes we don't see it either, do we? Well, when we read verse 31, it would be easy to feel sorry for Leah... And perhaps we should to a degree because it seems like God did indeed take notice of her in the fact that her husband didn't love her. But folks, before we feel completely sorry for Leah, let's also remember that to a degree she asked for this. She was in on the trickery on the wedding night when Jacob was supposed to be marrying Rachel and Laban and Leah saw to it that Jacob married Leah instead. There is no way that Leah was not in on that trickery. Plus, given the fact that Jacob had worked for Rachel's hand in marriage for seven years, and the Bible speaks of how Jacob loved Rachel, there's no way also that over the course of that seven years, Leah could not see how much Jacob loved Rachel. 
My point is, how did Leah think that this was going to turn out for her? Did she actually think all of this was going to turn out good? So yes, we feel sorry for her, but again, admittedly, she has asked for some of this. So again, verse 31, we certainly see marriage gone wrong. Okay? Well, the second thing I want you to see tonight is God's mercy to the unloved. God's mercy to the unloved. Despite the trickery that Laban and Leah did, verse 31 tells us something about God. God had mercy on this woman who must have been very lonely in the sense of her marriage. She knows she's not loved. And what a sad state of affairs this was for her. And so what does God do? God opens her womb so that she can bear children. Now we need to understand something. In this day and time, women gained much of their self-esteem from the sons that they were able to bear. These sons would have carried on the family heritage. And so for a woman to not be able to bear children was absolutely devastating in that particular culture. Now most modern women still desire tremendously to be mothers. It's who God has designed you to be. But women today also have other avenues where they can carry out purposes in life just like men do. But again, this was not the way it was in ancient times. And so that helps us to see the importance of everything that's going on here in these verses. Womanhood is at stake here. Make no mistake about it. Womanhood is at stake. When verse 31 says that Leah was hated, it doesn't mean hated in the sense that we think of the word. It is used in the Bible as a comparison. Compared to how Jacob loved Rachel, it's as though he hated Leah. Even though we've just been told in verse 30 that he loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. So you see, he loved Leah too. He just loved Leah less than he loved Rachel. The New Testament uses the word hate in this same way. Jesus said, unless you hate father and mother, you cannot be my disciple. Well, the Bible says that we're to honor our father and father and mother. So is Jesus saying that we're to hate our father and mother? No, but what he was saying is in comparison to our allegiance to him, it would be almost as though we did hate him. It's a term of comparison. And the Bible consistently uses the word hate this way. So I don't want you to think that Jacob couldn't stand the sight of Leah. 
That is not what is being communicated. Now, ironically, the one who was loved less was able to bear children, and the one who was loved more was not able to have children. What's God doing? God's sort of equalizing the playing field, isn't he? The thought is that Jacob's bond with Leah will be strengthened when he sees that he and Leah have a family together. And so there's the twofold purpose, the blessings of sons to carry on the family heritage, but also the bond between a husband and his wife being strengthened. Dr. Alan Ross uh, he's, he's a very important scholar on the book of, of Genesis. Makes the comment that we simply cannot do justice to this passage without also looking at the names that are given to these sons. What's the first one named? Reuben. Now, the Hebrew looks like the combination of look and a son. But the explanation helps even more. Has looked on my affliction. Has looked on my affliction. And there's also a wordplay meaning love me. Has looked on my affection and love me. And so the name would be a a continual reminder to Leah that God had looked on her affliction and intervened so that her husband would love her. And then the second son is named what? Simeon. Because the Lord heard that she was unloved. And so that name would be a reminder of what? That the Lord hears his people when they are in need. And so both Reuben and Simeon owed their very existence to the fact that God both saw and heard the cries of Leah as she desired a better relationship with her husband. These two sons would be God's way of meeting that need in Leah's life. Now the third son named Levi. This name carries with it the meaning of to join. Leah now hopes that her husband will be drawn to her and will be joined to her. Now over in the book of Numbers, this name, Levi, and the Levites would be associated with how the Levites would be joined to Aaron in the service of the Lord's house. And then the name Judah, Judah means praise for the Lord. Now perhaps as Ross says, she had hoped with Levi meaning to join, that her husband would be joined to her, 
but maybe this has not happened. And so with the birth of the fourth son, Leah has simply resigned herself to let her praise be in the Lord and in the Lord alone. And later in Genesis 49 verse 8, Jacob will prophesy that Judah's brothers would praise him, meaning that the tribe of Judah would rise to prominence. And indeed it did. Because Jesus the Messiah was of the tribe of Judah. Thirdly, I want you to see that children are a blessing from the Lord. Children are a blessing from the Lord. Rachel, as you can only imagine, is now quite distraught. She might be the favored wife, but she has been unable to do what her sister has done over and over again. And so she makes a demand on Jacob. Give me children or I die. Now, it's easy to understand Jacob's response, isn't it? Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? In other words, look, Rachel, I'm obviously not the one here with the problem. I mean, I've got four sons with your sister. So if we can't have children, it's obviously not me. But from the the angry exchange, we see the truth that the Bible consistently teaches that children are a blessing from the Lord. The Bible says that children are a gift from God and a blessing from God and that they are His creation. God uses a mother and father, yes, but... The child itself is from God. We see that also in the case of Hannah. Hannah who couldn't have children. And she cried out to the Lord. And the Lord allowed her to conceive. And she gave birth to Samuel. Now I'm emphasizing this point. Because in society today. We've lost sight of this completely. Yes, a man and a woman are involved, but the conception and the forming of that child are from God. And today, what are we doing? We are totally destroying life that God has given. May God have mercy on us. Since Roe v. Wade in 1973 legalized abortion up to the time of birth, somewhere around 50 to 55 million abortions have taken place. The estimates are 1.3 to 1.5 million abortions per year that are done, about about 4,000 a day. Between 1983 and 1989 alone, 24 million abortions were performed. Worldwide estimates are around 54 million each and every year. That is an abortion, an abortion every half second. Two abortions every second. 
Folks, imagine the United States from Maryland all the way down to Florida completely erased off the map. That's the magnitude when you look at the population of those states. From Maryland all the way down to Florida. What if all those states along the eastern seaboard gone completely? That's the magnitude. Now, since May 2009, three consecutive national polls have found more Americans now identifying themselves as pro-life than pro-choice, suggesting that there is a shift taking place about abortion. Currently, 47% consider themselves pro-life, 45% consider themselves pro-choice. According to Time magazine... Uh, pregnancy centers are playing a very important role in why abortion rates have lowered in recent years. Marvin Olasky, writing in World Magazine, said, Today it's still worthwhile to pass laws restricting abortion, but time and money spent on providing and pro- uh, promoting compassionate alternatives save more lives. Also in World Magazine, Russ Pulliam writes, It's likely that more unborn lives will be saved regardless of what happens in Washington, D.C. One reason is that more pregnancy resource centers are technically up to date making use of the sophisticated ultrasound machines so that pregnant mothers in a crisis can see their babies. Some centers are reporting that fully 95% of pregnant women who visit a pregnancy center decide to carry the baby to full term. Folks, that baby in the womb is nothing short of God's creation. Today, just in recent months though, what are we seeing? In in some states, even as the baby is being born, its life can be snuffed out. It is a complete disregard for God, for God himself and what he's made. Again, the point being made here is that children are a blessing from the Lord. Well, let's see Rachel's turn. Rachel's turn. Look beginning in verse 3 of chapter 30. Then she said, here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife and Jacob went into her and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Now what we see here was was unacceptable practice in ancient times. Didn't make it best or right, but it was acceptable. There could be a surrogate mother, and when the child was born, the baby would be put on the lap of the barren woman, and the baby from that point on would be considered hers. Now, 
on one level it's hard for us to imagine that but on the other level it's very easy to, to imagine that right because today that's essentially what takes place in adoption the birth mother gives up the child and an adopted mother from the point that she receives that child she's the child's mother as Dr. Alan Ross points out, the naming of Rachel's sons born through her maid do not reflect the same kind of faith that Leah had. Rather, the names instead reflect Rachel's bitter struggle with her sister for vindication. In other words, Leah's son's name said something about Leah reaching out to God. Rachel's names for her son, on the other hand, are more like taking a jab at her sister. Dan means God has vindicated me. It sort of says, ha, 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 look at me now. You're not the only one. God's vindicated me. And then Naphtali, a mighty struggle I have waged with my sister, or it's shortened to simply mean my wrestling. My wrestling. And then it's Leah's turn again. Leah gets in on the whole surrogate business. She gives her servant to Jacob. And folks, you got to admit, it's almost comical what, it, what is going on here. You know, it's sad, but it's funny too, isn't it, in a way. Jacob is being handed one woman after another to sleep with, and the two main women are doing it all out of this fierce competition that they have with one another to have sons. I mean, this ought to be the stuff that Hollywood movies are made out of, Right? Gad means fortune or it's an exclamation, what fortune? And Asher means happy or what fortune for other women will now consider me fortunate. I mean, folks, we are flat out getting into baby wars now. (laughs) It's one woman against the other. And they are both coming out swinging. Verse 14 following, Rachel wants the mandrakes that Reuben is bringing in from the field for Leah. Mandrakes were a plant in the potato family and they were considered an aphrodisiac. Its fruit was a yellowish berry about the size of of a very small tomato and they were believed to both increase sexual desire and to help barren women conceive some of the some of the ancient peoples called mandrakes love apples love apples now there is no modern scientific basis to the belief that it increased conception abilities. 
Rachel thinks, though, by getting her hands on the mandrakes that she will get the advantage again. And so she trades a night with Jacob for the mandrakes. She gives Jacob to Leah for the night while she gets the mandrakes. But ironically, notice what happens. Even though she gets the mandrakes, it is Leah who gets pregnant. Now, Issachar means wages or higher. Next, Leah bears Zebulun, which means God has endowed me with a good dowry, or now my husband will honor me. And then Leah bears a daughter, Dinah. No explanation is given in the Hebrew of Dinah's name because the girl would not end up being a tribal ancestor. Only the boys were tribal ancestors. So no special significance is attached to her name. Now finally, Rachel is at the end of her rope, so to speak... God hears her cry and allows her to have a son, Joseph. His name means, may the Lord add to me another son. You see, folks, it wasn't the surrogates and it wasn't the mandrakes. In both sisters, in both sisters... In the final analysis, it was always the same. If either one of them had a child, why was it? It was only because the Lord opened the womb. They thought surrogates the answer, mandrakes, no. It's the Lord who is the answer. Again... Children are a blessing from the Lord. They are His. Now, at the beginning of the passage, God heard Leah's cries of desperation and opened her womb. At the end of the story, Rachel is the one at the end of her rope, and God hears her cries And opens her womb. It's God who does this. So at the beginning of this narrative. One of them is in distress. Cries out to God. God hears. The end of the story. The other one is in distress. Cries out to God. And God intervenes. So each of the women being in distress. Calling out to God. Are like bookends. To this passage. I like what Dr. Alan Ross says the summary message is. And I quote here. God formed the family of Jacob. The founders of the tribes of Israel. In fulfillment of his promises at Bethel. Even though Jacob and his wives lived in envy and friction over how God chose to bless them. He also says they were brothers, sons of Israel, and should not, like their mothers, waver in their faith and bitterly compete for God's blessing. 
prosperity is dispensed to people by the sovereign will. Think of that last sentence again. Prosperity is dispensed to people by the sovereign will. Ultimately, as Ross says, we must put away strife, we must put away envy, and accept what we have or don't have, and what others have or don't have, accepting that the fact that it all comes from the hand of God. And so what we need to do is accept God's wisdom in both situations. And to that I think we can say a hearty amen.